Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is J.D. Koch. He's the Associate Rector at Christ Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. He's also a theologian. He did his doctorate in systematic theology at the University of Humboldt, dealing with issues of law and gospel as the boundary of theological reflection. I give you J.D. Koch. J.D., welcome back to the podcast. Scott, great to be back, man. Great to see you. Yeah. Happy Epiphany. Happy Epiphany. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a great liturgical season. I'd say almost an underrated liturgical season. You know, I, I would have said that in the past, um, but I feel like in the past um, three or four years with all of the questions about um, authority and revelation and, you know, how do you know what's true in these things, I think that the whole concept of Epiphany with this sort of external revelation, at least the claim uh, about it, and then what its ramifications are. I've had so much fruit, or so much so much fodder, I should say, um, in discussing that, that it's become one of my favorite seasons. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there's a lot there. And we've got some interesting texts. First, we have Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 10. We got the call of Jeremiah. We have yes. the Lord saying that he formed Jeremiah in the womb. Before he formed him in the womb, he knew him. And... And then you have. Well, that's not that's not a contentious statement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't know who I don't know who would find that uh, sort of problematic these days. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, and it's also theologically interesting because it's almost like saying I, I think you think of a text like Revelation thirteen eight, like the Lamb of God slain before for the foundation of the world. It's, it's almost like God's like I have I knew you as Redeemer. And you were going to be a prophet in the scheme of redemption before I chose to be your creator. I mean, where this is P.T. Forsyth has this thing like the cross at the heart of God. So you have yes. a sense in which like the cross isn't and God's you know journey with Israel and Jesus is not plan B. It's it's plan A. Yeah. I mean, and of course, that gets into a, you know, incredibly um, sort of speculative. I mean, from our perspective, uh, mindset, because the, you know, bringing in the question of eternity and time and God's so sort of creative knowledge outside of our experience of it is just, um, you know, rightfully awe-inspiring, you know, rightfully sort of mind-blowing, because you begin to contemplate what that actually means. You know, it's not unlike Paul at the end of Romans 11, when he begins to just consider the the God's sort of sovereign design for what we call redemptive history and begins to wonder about, you know, the place of Israel and the cross and all of these incredible um, realities that God is um, sovereign over. And he ultimately just throws himself down, you know, before God and says how, how unsearchable and majestic and, and, you know, unfathomable is the wisdom and, and majesty of God. You know, and I think there's a certain... Um, fitting real, uh, 
sort of comparison to Jeremiah's entire ministry, really, for that matter. You know, he gets called sort of despite himself. He becomes what we would, you know, he's been referred to as the weeping prophet, you know, because he's basically, um, you know, like a semi-depressive, it seems like, you know, the whole time. And yet, you know, I love what I love about this one is that he put his hand out, he touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, see, I put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And he gives, he, he at that moment, puts into Jeremiah's mouth the the power that is sort of the unleashed from the prophets through God, is that they, by their words, they bring um, you know, judgment and redemption and law and gospel to bear. And it's, it's really powerful. Um, yeah, this is always know. what God's word does, right? It, to, in, in the lives of, of sinners, whether it's, a, it's, it's corporate or individual, That's right. it's always this, when we're, when we're, so we're, I think Tim Keller says this, something like, uh, like pride is where, uh, where we sit, we, we sort of, intend to sit where only God is worthy That's of right. sitting, right? That's right. And the atonement is where God sits where only we deserve to sit. But so, like, the gospel word, before you get to the atonement, you have to be dislodged from the, from the false right. throne, right? That's so right. there's often a building, a, 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 there's a, there has to necessarily be an uprooting that's right. Uh, before there's a, 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 a building up. And that's what the prophets do. I mean, that's what I've been talking about that in a, a class on Sundays that I'm teaching that the 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 work of the law, as it were, which is just the, the word of God. I mean, the, any speaking outside of you with a claim over you, i.e. the law, um, whether you like it or not, son, you know, that sort of thing, uh, has one of two options. It either it either drives you um or it, it it drives you away or to your knees. I mean, this is what happens. And um, and I think this is where the uprooting, the plucking up is that, of course, many people to whom Jeremiah was preaching, not the least of which the successive generations of hearers of prophets and then preachers, you know, the reaction has, has been the same, that people either uh, repent, lament, and turn for a savior, or they um, justify, obfuscate, and um, defend themselves um, and their own sort of kingship or however, you know, their own, their own right to the throne. And I think, um, you know, but that's the role of the prophet and preacher is that we can't, and, and what is it, John three say, control where those spirit will blow. But we do know the means by which um, he's brought to bear on the hearts of, of people. And that's through, as God gives to Jeremiah, this power of his word um, unleashed, you know, to pluck up and to, to, um, pull down to destroy to overthrow and thankfully to build also and to plant which is not uh, it's not just a destructive word um but is uh, you know builds you tears you down to build you up yeah and you know it's interesting too because you have here this what what some theologians call right the scandal of particularity you know this is yeah. a message for all the nations and yet it starts in a conquered nation in the ancient near east here you know in the 6th century or whatever and, you, and it's one guy Jeremiah and it's God's particularly speaking to him. And this is always like, I think as late moderns, we think, well, if something's universal, it should be emailed to everybody or something. But that, right. that, but that you have to sort of, that the way that everyone is reached is through the one, is through the few. Right. It's through, And so that, I think that goes off in a stumbling block. <clears throat> and yet it's, it, it, it's ultimately, it's true here. It's also true 
Because here's the ultimate one that is uh, plucked up and pulled down, destroyed, never thrown right. But then on the third day, uh, it's, it's built up, it rises That's up right. to bring all That's the right. nations to himself, right? So, And yet it's one person, one, it goes into one Jew in, yeah. in the middle of history, you know? So I think that that's, it's, you can't get away. I mean, that grace always comes in, in this form that, that, that is a little scandalous, yes. especially to late modern people. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think, you know, that to, speaking of the particularity of it, too, I think that, um, you know, the offense of it is is only in the abstract, because when we when we personally recognize our need for grace, it's always individually directed to us. You know, it's not we we theoretically want grace for the world, but we specifically need grace for us. And so when we begin to see our, as it were, particularity in a, in this, and, and that doesn't have to be a, a selfishness. I mean, we can talk about, you know, dying to self and then being raised to a, to a genuine new communal life. But the the initial um, process is what does the writer of the Hebrews say? You know, each each person is appointed unto themselves for death and judgment. You know, and I can't do that for you, and you can't do it for me. So when we hear this word that was prefigured through the person and finally secured in Christ for you, then that begins to, I think, um, to sort of speak to its veracity in a way that that makes it much more concrete than abstract. Um, and in, thankfully, in a, in a way that'll preach. <laughs> yeah, and you see that even in the formation of the Bible, right? It's not like Israel sits around and writes the first chapter of Genesis That's and right. thinks, okay, well, we've got this nice little rhythmic liturgical thing about God, God on the first, second, third day, and then let's call out to this God while we're in Egypt. Now, it's only yeah. it's only when they they realize they realize God's their healer, redeemer, deliverer that eventually later they come to write these great creation hymns that that God, yeah. the, the one who redeemed us, is the one. That created everything, you know. But you, you're right. You always start from the personal, the particular, uh, you know, the healing before you get to the the big picture. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, and I, I mean, I think, and we learn that. I mean, we learn that both through the scriptures, but also, you know, just by our own experience. And, um, you know, the, the intersection of the two is generally where you find the most um, traction with respect to what's going to communicate authentic, authentically to um, to to the world. So we got First Corinthians thirteen next versus. <laughs> oh, one. you mean the wedding? The one wedding thing. Right, right, right. I, this is uh, everybody hears this at weddings, right? That's sharing the context. But it's interesting here. This is the love is patient, love is kind. You know, it's not rude, it's not self seeking. But it's funny, right? It's everything. All the lists of love are the antithesis of what Paul has generally said about the Corinthians in the preceding twelve chapters. Right? Yes, they're arrogant, yes. they're rude, they're self seeking. They they keep records of right and wrong. Like That's right. That's <laughs> like right. They, yeah. So it's it's. I mean, it's funny when you hear this right at weddings. You're kind of you get kind of smirked. It's yeah, like, it's this is not meant favorite. to be sentimental. That's exactly right. It's one of my favorite things to preach and teach about, actually, because it's it's where I find it's where I find the biggest confusion between between the law and the gospel, theologically understood. Because as we remember, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he says, "Well, um, the greatest commandment is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor to commandments all the law and prophets. Therefore, essentially, the uh, law and the prophets." encapsulated in this one command, which was to love. And so the problem is that when love is read 
as the gospel and not the law. And the law is holy, just, righteous, and good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, what person in their right mind wouldn't want this to apply to them? But the pointing out is just how dissimilar their lives are to the actual holy, righteous, and just commandment of law, which he will then go on to say was was only secured for us by the death and resurrection of Christ for sinners. And so when we see that the the gospel is our is his our um, is the reconciliation been given to us despite our inability to uphold the law, i.e., love. Then we see the picture of God's love for us being laid down while we were yet sinners. Then it puts us into a position to actually reflect something of his love in a um, sort of uh, reciprocal way, as opposed to this um, this naive idea that you hear at sermons and weddings that they say, well, this is just, just go do this, kids, you know, get this together, get out there and, and oh, by the way, here's your list of, you know, the 15 things, the ways that you're going to love your spouse. Well, as you well know, as anyone that's been married know, or as anyone certainly who has been married knows, um, it's a heck of a lot harder than to just <laughs> know the right thing to do. And so I think that's where Paul, um, you know, when this is read at weddings, the point of this is to bring the couple, as is the point of the law in general, to their knees before Christ, and then recognize that it's on account of his love for the unlovely, or as, the, as Paul would say, the justification of the ungodly, that we actually then have the greatest hope for um, emanating lives of something that mirrors this of love, you know, growing in the likeness of Christ, and however you want to, however you want to say it. But I think it's 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 incredible to me that people find this passage to be anything other than condemning um, or hopeful outside of the reality of the gospel. If that makes any sense, I mean, in in Christ, it makes it's 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 the most beautiful passage, you know, rightly lauded. But the the amount of number of people who return to it who have very little otherwise conception of the the way that God has loved us, um, it, it it's um, it perplexes me. Let's put it that way. Um, so yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of a no. Rant, I think that's I, absolutely right. I go on it all the time. Yeah, now it's interesting because there's one of my favorite books, is a little book by Von Balthasar called "Love Alone Is Credible," mm. and in it he talks about what happens when God sort of stands over you as, as holy other. And he says a stone stands before him, a human being, obstructing the, obstructing his path, and there's no way he can avoid crashing into it in the hardest and most frustrating way, so that in stumbling he is forced to see he is without a foothold, because you can't kind of make it to, to the transcendent one. And he says, but unless he blindly takes offense at the offense, he can interpret this trap that God has set for him only as God's love, a love that runs after him, pulls him out of the pit, casts aside his chains, and places him in the freedom of divine and now even human love. Because of his dim pre-understanding of love, he can prick up his ears at the sound of the message of absolute love and perceive the image to which the message points. Stumbling into the trap, however, first makes it clear to him that neither the existence nor the essence of the love offering itself to him belongs to him by nature. The scandal here is here to draw his eye to the uniqueness of the love that manifests itself and, in its light, to reveal his own incohate creaturely love quite concretely for the non-love that it is. That's what's amazing. There's a long section which he talks That's about. That's beautiful. Our, our best loves are, are finite and failing. Yes. And then because we're fallen, they're often, you know, very sordid. And so like, yeah. you think you <laughs> know what, you think you know what love means until you real your ears prick up when you hear about the love of God. And then when you, so when you experience it, you realize, wait, I don't know that I've ever loved at all. Yes, no, for sure. And I think that's, that's, that's the key, um, is that if, if, and this is what Paul, this is Paul's entire sort of 
sort of reflections can be seen as as a rumination on how is the love of God shown in the cross of Christ for the world? How is that love? Like, and what does that say about our loves and what does that say about his love? And then, of course, we get John, First John, who just spells it out um, immediately for us, who says, and this is love, not that you love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us as a propitiation for our sins. And we have this, this reversal of what we think love is, whereby we see the what Paul would say, the foolishness of the cross. And yet in that very foolishness, like like you said from the quote, in that that um that stumbling uh, of our own or, or the revelation of our own limits of our own love in the light of what Christ has done on our behalf, we then have a sort of reordering of our loves. I mean I think that's the that's um you know I was reflecting on this the other day because we were talking about um this very thing the um how often this is used at weddings and it's not that it's it's to your point it's not that people don't want this but there was what the theologians you know the reformers would call the enabling word you know to get you from the desire to the to the reality of it well that was the gospel um i.e the the god justifies the ungodly that he's you know he's been crucified for your sins and raised for your justification that he that there is he's a friend of sinners however you want to say it and that that enabling word that would allow you to take this this probably self-serving desire, run it through the the righteous judgment and then absolution of Christ and the cross, and then place it back into his hands and rest in his control um, is an entirely different different way of of being um, loving, you know, this side of heaven. And um you know, I don't think it's it's not unsurprising that after Paul sort of explains his his consternation with the Corinthians and and sort of lays out some of the areas where they are, as we would say, uh, falling short of, of the ideal, um, he then goes into this this you know, let me show you a more excellent way than this thing of uh, this description of love, and then he begins to further defend the actual reality of of um, God's you know through Christ, life, death, and resurrection for the world, and it's that this is became becomes the 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 sort of clarifying um, factor, which which uh, you know makes makes in, this incredibly important concept of love um, all that more clear through the personal work of Christ. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, interesting because he says you, know, you have this at the end. You know, you have these three th- things: faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And then he moves from love to expound faith and hope. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it, what this, you know, the, the the faith and hope, the object of them is the one who is love. Amen. Yeah. No, it's it's. I mean, it makes sense to me because I think that the 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 end of you know the 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 end goal, love, however conceived, you know, and then if if love is not an idea but a person, I mean, this is what we say, you know, I mean, it's not it's not the concept, but but love embodied, you know, love came down at Christmas, the old the old hymn says, and so if love is the goal, then faith is that by which we see, you know, the eyes through the eyes of faith, the reality of God's love revealed in the most um, um, unlikely of places, i.e. the cross. And then through that cross, having our life, death, and, and absolution secured, we then live lives of hope, which then, and only in that stance, allow us to emanate something of the love of God, this side of heaven. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's not a calculus, but it, it's 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 a beautiful um, sort of I don't want to say system, but a beautiful um, or, organic way by the Spirit to to appropriate the, the work of God in Christ for the world, and then to then further reflect it. Which of course then goes back to do what we 
we're commanded to do in the first place, love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so when we have a clear idea of what God's love is, then we can share it in the most, in the appropriate way to others. There's this great guy, Tomas Halik, he's a Czech theologian priest. He wrote this great book called Patience with God. Uh, and he has this quote from this. I found out it was like a Coptic layperson or something, Adele Bastavros. But this quote says, patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope. And patience with God is faith. And it's just a beautiful thing about the, 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 the sort of... Uh, yeah, the, the sort of that I think that, and he also says that one of the things that Halik says that one of the things that atheism and fundamentalism have in common is they're fundamentally impatient forms of faith that that can't tolerate the divine mystery. And I think that that love opens up this kind of patience with the mystery that the love takes, the mysterious yeah, form. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that if anything, the yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think that faith is the ability to trust, you know, the pistis that trusts God and his revealed love to us, despite the ways in which it doesn't look like that which we would have um, originally desired. I mean, I think that's that would be like a sort of a shorthand or longhand for the cross, you know? Yeah. Somehow this is love. Um, and it's a foolishness to the Jews and uh, I mean, stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul said, but for those of us being saved, somehow, by his mercies, it becomes actually our profession of love. You know, it's quite a thing. <laughs> So on to the gospel reading, Luke 4, yeah, 21 through 30. We've got the, I don't know, one of the worst sermon receptions of all time. I mean, this is not, like, I, I've had I've, I've had sermons I thought were well-received, ones I thought were less well-received. I've never been run out on a rail and made people, this, or maybe that's good preaching if people are that angry, but, uh, you know, like, but to hear Jesus says, says that the Isaiah 61 prophecy is fulfilled in their hearing, he kind of, that's the sermon. It's, it's uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's a brevity, which is good, which usually they yeah. don't, usually they don't kill you for brevity. No one ever says yeah. that. I wish the sermon was five minutes longer. Was it too long? The famous joke is, you know, the preacher asked his wife, was the sermon too long? It's like, no, honey, it just seemed too long. That was the joke. Well, yeah, you know, this is a fascinating passage, and I I have been doing um, uh, some work on it even before. That's why when you asked me to do this, I was happy I'm preaching this week, so I'd already begun contemplating it. But, you know, what's the juxtaposition here, which is fascinating, is that initially— they say that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And it's precisely because that prophecy from Isaiah is amazing. You know, I mean, it's the, the, the lame shall, I mean, the blind will receive their sight and the, the, the captives will be released and the year of the Lord's favor will be proclaimed. And this, this incredibly, I mean, who doesn't want that to happen in their lives? And then he immediately flips over to, um, to say, you know, they say, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, Dr. Cure yourself. And you will say, do you also in your hometown do the things that we have heard that you did in Capernaum? And so what he's pointing out to them is he is wont to do, Jesus, he's able to to see that there's some sort of, you know, back to this particularity thing, some sort of resentment or some sort of jealousy or something about Capernaum 
and his work in Capernaum over against what he should have been, by their estimation, doing for them in in Nazareth, you know. And so he begins to to yeah, yeah, because that because that I, I was doing some reading on this. Thing. Some several scholars are saying don't don't hear that doctor cure yourself as sort of. Uh, that's their self-interest. Like he's like, yes, it would be like yes. cure your family, cure your, that's you know, right. like, yeah. So, but it's interesting because these are oppressed people, and part of that passage which he leaves out is the day of vengeance of the Lord, which would would probably knock out people like the Roman oppressors. So, I mean, they're probably thinking, all right, we're going to make Israel great again, and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, for and, sure. and and our and our guy is going to build the wall. He's going to make kick everybody out. He's <laughs> yeah. going to or he's going to rebuild the wall. And, and, right. and, and, and so, yeah, they're probably initially thinking this is good news for Israel, bad and especially for for them. And bad yep. news for the for the outsiders. Well, of course, and that's when he also, you know, then he brings up these two these two examples of sort of when the prophets, when Elijah, um, you know, passes over the Israelites despite some of their famine and brings, you know, God's miraculous blessings to the to the widow of Zapparath and then to Naaman. Um, and you know, that's what makes him mad. He's like, you have stories. We have accounts like this of God already operating in ways that aren't just in the self-interest of, you know, of, um, of, of who you think it should be in and essentially implying that he and his prophecy was, um, was similarly situated, which of course we know it was going to be because we, as we find out that he was rejected, you know, by his own and, you know, his own wanted him not. And yet he, he you know, remained. And, and I think that's where, um, it's, it's fascinating because that's where I think the sermon would come out is that you, you want to be the poor, the oppressed, that you recognize in yourself, the lame, the blind, the, those, you know, that's a good thing to recognize. But when we don't recognize that as a either universal state, or maybe in particularly in light of his teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the state of even those, our enemies, you know, who we were supposed to pray for and bless and, um, well, then we become complicit in the the the, the very systems, for lack of a better word, um, the very broken reality of, of the oppressive world in and of ourselves. I mean, I think that, you know, look at these people, these very people who were so easily, easily um, identified with being, you know, the gracious words that he said of, of the, the oppressed being set free in the year of the Lord's favor were the very ones that were going to go try to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, now, wait a minute. You were just so excited that the Lord was coming to release the captives and bring sight to the blind and release and show the year of the Lord's favor, and yet you were about to murder this man. Um, you know that should bring you up, bring you some pause. You know, um, yeah, yeah. And the gospel is <clears throat> always for the poor in spirit, right? Which is usually going to be usually the poor, right? I, I, or if or women in a sexist society or the ethnic minority, you know, over against the majority culture. Because usually when you're marginalized, your spirit is poor, but not always. Like you could, because so it's interesting. Jesus gives a woman uh, who is probably not a woman of means, this widow at all and an outsider right. and yet Naaman a very powerful person right so yes, he's yes, and he's he's capable of being poor in spirit and and yes. and the oppressed people in Nazareth are poor and capable of not being poor in spirit so it's interesting yeah. how like how how it usually is the poor in spirit who will be who the poor generally who will be closer to being poor in spirit but not always and and, and I think you can see that here no I think that's a really good point and I think you know it 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 harkens it points to a little bit that part about Naaman um you know, Rodney Stark, I uh, mentioned often, the sociologist in Baylor, he um, has this this little off 
uh, this little throwaway line in one of his books on the triumph of Christianity, sort of confronting Marx's idea that the only the poor, literally poor, could need Christianity. And he says that what Marx didn't appreciate was sort of that, what does it call it, the quiet desperation of the aimlessly affluent, you know, and I think that was a, uh, that was a beautiful line that sticks with me because it's, of course, it's not to minimize the, the material needs of the world, but I think it's it's a really good point to, to look at that Jesus himself uses the two examples that, that sort of are the bookends of socioeconomic realities, both being poor people who were, who were um, delivered from their, from their, you know, need. And then, you know, the best part of the whole thing, going full circle back to Jeremiah being called before the foundations of the earth, is that Jesus, you know, just realizes it's not his time and just gets, just gets out. Like he just, you know, he's like, no, this is not, you know, it's like when the, uh, uh, he just decides that he knows this is not his time to be, to be killed. And so he just makes his way through the crowd and, and leaves. And I think there's a, there's a certain foretelling or at least a foreshadowing to him having, you know, sitting before Pilate saying that I'm laying my own life down, like you're not taking it from me. And that this in this reality, you know, these people who wanted to take it from him, he had decided, well, this is not this is not the time. Um, and so thus begins the great adventure. Yeah. And, t- and, and his and his time in his time, it won't be to bring the vengeance but bear it. It, right. won't, it, it, it to, to, but to end the vengeance, you know, to end uh, the accusation, not to sort of uh, bring it forth as the prosecutor, as the judge judged in our place. Yeah, man. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, I think that the sermon, I, I think, I, I don't like the way the lectionary breaks it up, I have to say, because I think the sermon works better. I think the, the whole pericope, as it were, works better, uh, one story, because you can really, you know, you see almost like a foreshadowing of, um, of uh, Holy Week, right there. Oh, you know, totally. You see yeah. It's like you know Palm Sunday. You know you're the guy. We're so glad you're here. You know, um, and then so quickly the very people that were um, that were so finding his words and his reality so gracious were the ones who attempted to kill him in this story, but obviously in this account, but were part and complicit in the actual his actual death on Holy Week. And I think um, you know, as you said, and I think as we can glory in the sort of upending of all of our expectations of justice, of mercy, and most importantly of love um, through his life, death, and resurrection um, began with this this sermon that he preaches and ended, uh, well, hasn't ended yet in the sermons that we get to preach uh, because we continue to to get to praise and, 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 and educate until he comes again. Well, blessings to you in the time between the times as you're preaching this week, my friend. Amen, Blessing Scott. to our listeners. Amen, Scott. Great to be with you, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to JD for coming on the podcast and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.